0: Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, Episode 27A, an interview on the rise of Taft with Perry Arnold. I'm excited to welcome Perry Arnold to the show today. Perry is a professor emeritus in the Department of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame, a consultant to New York Times and Education, and author of several books, including Remaking the Presidency, Roosevelt, Taft, and Wilson. Today. We're going to focus on the second of those three presidents, William Howard Taft, and his rise to the presidency. Perry, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure to be here, Kenny. So, listeners of my podcast are used to stories of lawyers becoming politicians, but Taft really seems to make that transition begrudgingly and relatively late in his career. Why was Taft so fascinated with the law?
1: You use the word fascinated. I would not use that word. Because um, I don't think Taft um, became fascinated and then went into the law. I think this was a natural development. His father was a lawyer. His father was a b- very political lawyer. He has served in Grant's cabinet. He was a minister to Russia. Um, and prior to that, to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And so he comes from a highly political family of lawyers. His older brother, Charles, was a lawyer. Um, his, I think, younger brother, Henry, I think younger, uh, was also a lawyer in New York City, corporate lawyer. So to for, to be a lawyer for Tap was simply in his genes. So it wasn't fascination that brought him there. Um, and uh, But I think it was in the process of being a lawyer and being a judge in particular that that, that Taft created a fascination, what you're identifying is a passion in him. And I think what it was, was um, a real love for the logic of the law, for the, the kind of um, answers one can get through deep research. Uh, Taft was not a Brandeis, who he, hated by the way, for reasons you probably know because of uh, Ballinger Pinchot. Um, uh, he wasn't Frankfurter. He wasn't, um, um, he wasn't a great dissenter. He was a craftsman of the law. And, that's a, and that was work that he loved because it, it allowed, in my reading of him. It, it allowed him through hard and deep work and careful writing to, to, to solve problems. I think that that was an exercise that he loved, and it was, I think, also an activity that um, that he found rewarding because it was, in some ways, passive. Um, at, at, at several points in his writing in letters, et cetera, he'd remark that he much he he much preferred being behind the bench rather than arguing cases because that meant you had to. You had to take sides it was it was in a way it was too active. he loved being the decider when a problem was was posed so thus, I think he becomes fascinated by the law because it seems to address characteristics of his that are of deeply set in his personality
0: that's awesome. so so he gets into kind of the family business and then he finds out, oh I actually love this that's that's good <laughs> yeah
1: and um remember the family business is law and politics yes. so, and so he loved also looking for the next position that politics would produce him I mean so there's that famous quote of his um, to quote um, like every um, uh, like every well-trained Ohio man um, I've always had my plate the right side up with <laughs> and, and so he was, he was a hungry political lawyer. I mean, the most, of of all the, of of everything I've said and thought about that, still the most remarkable episode in his his life, I think, is, what, about six, seven years after entering the bar, he decides that he is going to promote himself for appointment to the Supreme Court of the United States. Yes. Um, Because an opening (laughs) occurred at a time when Positions in the court were not just party-based, but geographical as well. So an opening occurred that would properly be filled by an Ohio man, a Republican, ah, of course. Yeah. And I thought, you know, why not, why not me? <laughs> because I'm Alonzo's son. Yeah, I have a very well-connected father and a very well-connected brother, Charles. So I, count me in. Um, he didn't get it, of course. Right. Um and he, and he understood perfectly uh, well why, because later he observed, I think in a letter to his father, that um, if I were president, I never would have appointed somebody like me. <laughs> you know, you know, in a, in, 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 in a tr- traditional party regime, yeah. the, the jobs go to the loyalists. right was a loyalist. Why not try?
0: Why not try? And really, that's the lesson everybody should probably take from Taft. Like, try, you never know, you might get lucky. Exactly. Exactly. And he kept
1: working for Taft, one way or another.
0: Yeah. And so, speaking of it, you know, Taft, he would be a judge or a lawyer climbing up, you know, this career ladder for basically the first 20 years of his career. Right. How does this experience shape his political style when he gets into politics later?
1: I think it severely, that's, I think the answer to that is complex. My first answer is I think it severely limits him because um, it gave him um, a fairly narrow toolkit um, for dealing with the world. Um, A toolkit that he was very good using, that is this kind of deep dives to solve problems. Um, But by the same token, um, it gave him too little experience with the kinds of um, the kinds of conflicts and controversies that a political actor has to resolve. Let me go back to that point that he himself made about preferring to be behind the bench. The the advocate arguing in front of the bench is having to do something that in some sense is inherently political, choose a side, make the best case for it. Taft didn't like that. He liked being given the problem and then he could resolve it through a deep dive into a precedent in law, so I think the law in some ways crippled him or his legal experience limited him rather than crippled him. Mm. Um, now well let's take a case where I think we can see his own mind is thinking of the law as strengthening him in ways that were were misreading when he as he was appointed to the Philippines, so uh, McKinley asks him. Will you go as a chairman of this commission, the civil commission, to take over government in the Philippines from the military, um, 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 uh, military command? Um, His response was, my background is perfect. This is a job for a lawyer. Well, his background wasn't perfect. (laughs) It wasn't a job for a lawyer. It turns out he did a very good job there um, because he was a both smart and resourceful man. But the law was not the appropriate toolkit for the job he was taking on. But take it on, he did. And it was, after all, a better job than the one he had, he thought. And Nellie, <laughs> his wife, loved the idea of going to the Philippines. So she pushed him to take it.
0: Okay, and I want to unpack like all these things you just talked about. These are like all the things we're going to talk about more in the next few questions. Let's start with, you know, despite Taft. Constantly saying, and as you said, like he wanted to be a judge. That's what he liked to be. People kept seeing to push him toward political office, most famously his his wife, Nellie. What's your take on Nellie's impact on his career, both in pushing him toward politics and Um, enabling and supporting him in politics?
1: Let let, let me say two things in response. The first is um, Nellie, and then what I think is the more important characterization, the family. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, the uh, Nellie is a very ambitious woman. Uh, she's smart. Um, and from the very beginning of their marriage, she had eyes on uh, uh, William Howard going the next step. Um, and she was not so happy with their lives when he was in his judgeships. Because <laughs> she thought it was boring. <laughs> but it was in, in some ways, exactly what he loved. She yeah. thought it was boring, <laughs> that was being passive and doing deep dives in the law mm-hmm. in places that were not as exciting as she thought she deserved to be, which yeah. was Washington in yeah. this case because when he find well his so his legal career gets him um pretty quickly to the solicitor general's role in washington yeah. and that is that was the kind of um uh, the kind of uh, booby prize for tr- wanting to be appointed to the Supreme Court. right? Um, so um, Harrison did couldn't give him the Supreme Court, but he did think, oh, this would be a good guy for the Solicitor General's job. That's the the, the federal um, um, advocate who yeah. argues in front of the Supreme Court. Yeah. It's a job he held for less than a year because another judgeship opened up and this was <laughs> a rather distinguished one. It was a seat on the Sixth, sixth Circuit. Yeah, uh, Federal appellate court, yeah, but of course that took him back to Cincinnati, and so there she there's Nellie back in <laughs> Cincinnati, um, and if Cincinnati's not the most exciting city at the moment, <laughs> think about what it was in the early twentieth century, yeah, so the, um, and that was Nellie's problem. Um, <laughs> here, here's here's Taft with a there's a pretty distinguished judgeship mm-hmm. to sit on the federal circuit, yeah, um, but it wasn't enough. And so, uh, so Nellie's always there wanting to push Taft towards the next job that could, could fall onto his plate. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> having said that, I think that we, over, um, we overestimate uh, Nellie's importance because there are others involved in this. There's, there's a family enterprise. I have never studied a major political figure who was more dependent on a set of intimate actors than Taft was. Taft has a very strong relationship with his parents and then with his siblings, such that every major decision he makes called for a corporate meeting (laughs) with all of the family. And the question was, should William Howard do this or that? Including, um, on, on one occasion at least, when uh, he was already, s- he was in the Philippines and Roosevelt offered him, Roosevelt to become president, McKinley was assassinated and offered him the Supreme Court. And th- that called for a family conference in New York, sending representatives to see, Walt- to see Roosevelt, to see what Roosevelt really intended. And uh, Taft was bitterly frightened that Roosevelt, that Roosevelt wanted to get rid of Taft from the Philippines. In other words, he, he, was, he, he, he felt uncertain about where he was. And so the family enterprise had to go and solve that problem for him. Um, and they suggested he turned down the offer the Supreme Court. Yeah. And so I mean, so there's this larger set of actors who are influencing Taft, not just an ambitious wife, Yeah, It's a hell of an ambitious family.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Thank you for giving that context. And so we mentioned the Philippines a couple times now. Let's let's dive more into that. Uh, Taft will finally leave this life of law when President McKinley convinces him to join a civilian commission in charge of the Philippines. And Haley says, let's do it. Right. (laughs) Right. And how does McKinley land on Taft, though? Like, what makes McKinley say... This, this judge over in Cincinnati, who, as you say, like, Taft thought he had the perfect toolkit, but he, he really didn't. You know? But what made McKinley think he did?
1: Yeah. Why would you pull Taft out of the hat?
0: Um, I think that's a very good question. And the, only,
1: the best way to answer would be, if it exists, to be into McKinley's correspondence. Right. <laughs> However, not, not being in McKinley's correspondence, I think the best answer is um, the family enterprise because Taft, uh, McKinley was being heavily lobbied by Charles Taft, um, by uh, Henry Taft, uh, both of whom were powerfully influential. Charles was a major publisher and Mm -hmm. a major Republican in Cincinnati, Henry being a major corporate lawyer in New York and heavily influencing, heavily influenced and powerful Republicans. uh, To appoint Taft to the cabinet, and so as McKinley enters the presidency, so thus, McK- thus Taft is on McKinley's um, horizon. Got as it, a yeah. Figure. yeah. Um, well, he didn't get appointed to the cabinet, but then there's this, you know, there's this position potentially way out there in the Philippines. You got to give, you know, these are powerful figures. You got to give the Taft something, sit <laughs> with him, Howard, <laughs> to Manila. And so more or less, that's how he gets to Manila. I mean, it's, it's not as if McKinley had assessed Taft as having one specific set of skills, like he can speak Tagalog, Right. <laughs> he's the man. To yeah. It's just that, he the, you know, it fell out of the
0: sky and Taft's plate was facing the right side up. So when Taft arrives in the Philippines, he arrives like in the middle of this pretty brutal Philippine-American war, this guerrilla, brutal guerrilla war. Being led by
1: brutal American military.
0: Yes. It was awful. awful. So so what's expected of Taft in the circumstance? I mean, they drop him in saying, okay, you're the civilian commission, soon a civilian governor, but it is very much a military operation out there. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I think this is, I just think one of the best stories Both about Taft, but also about American, you know, the building of the American uh, empire in the late late 19th and early 20th century, because it is—it's clearly an imperial story. It's a story of colonialism, but it's a story also of attempting to bring some order and decency into a colonial situation. Um, Taft goes to the, the the commission goes to the Philippines with marching orders from the Secretary of War, uh, uh, Elihu Taft, um, to create a government, to create a, a, a situation which would be um, at least palatable for, um, uh, for, Philippi- uh, for the Filipino elite and upper middle class, to, to kind of bring a kind of decency to um, uh, American governance of the Philippines. So essentially, Taft and the commissioner said, "Go do good. Go do something decent out there." And Taft and Taft takes the bull by the horns. His, I think, his accomplishments in the Philippines are quite remarkable, um, and he loved doing it, and and his wife loved doing it. And I think what he what he showed in the Philippines was a, a set of, of of possibilities that had not yet been expressed in his legal career. First of all, he loved. He loved the kind of going public part of this, meaning he loved going out and pressing the flesh, mm. and, uh, and, and Nellie loved going out and pressing the flesh. So they would go out to villages and they would meet local leaders, and uh, Nellie was out there meeting and people shaking hands. And um, one of the things I discovered was that horrified the American military because these were a lower class; these were this was these were inferior people. And, I mean there's a really strong racism.
0: Yes, yeah, the them. American people feeling that toward the Filipinos.
1: Yeah, and Taft and his wife lacked that. I mean, there was a real decency in the Tafts. And so um, they, they um, went a long way towards um, creating a kind of goodwill amongst um, well-placed Filipinos towards the Americans. Um, and they also, <laughs> they just loved being in this imperial situation, they loved <laughs> living in a palace. Um, they loved having this kind of command over a little empire of theirs. Um, there was there was no check and balances. Taft um, right. was the sovereign. And, it's um, good to be king. <laughs> yeah, and he was, and he had the political skills it turned out to use uh, the, the War Department to use uh, Alajio Taft to uh, circumvent. Of the military commanders, General MacArthur.
0: Wait, uh, wait. Who, who is the secretary? You said, Eli- is it Elihu Root or? Eli- is Taft? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Elihu
1: Root. Yeah, He's the secretary of war. Yes, and uh, General Mc- General MacArthur is the military commander. Of Philippe, yeah, who was a pretty clumsy guy. This is the father.
0: Of right, I know. David. We're going to get to know his son soon. And oh goodness.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and so Taft. Uh, so so Taft is very successful in this role. And all the evidence is that he just loves it. And, and Nellie loves it. However, it wasn't great for his health. Um, oh. Here's this overweight, relatively unfit man <laughs> having to suffer with all the kind of maladies that are around in a tropical setting.
0: Sure. Yeah.
1: Well before antibiotics. Um, and, um, and he's constantly fighting himself with stomach problems, mm. with infections. And so... Down the road, well, uh, the story of how he then gets from the Philippines back to Washington itself is complex because he didn't really want to go. I mean, he <laughs> just loved being in the Philippines. But um, it, it just it wound up, I think, being costly for him to be there in terms of his personal health. And, um, and then there's, the, then there's the, the, that kind of, what to call it, um, the kind of little worm gnawing at him that was his ambition. This was a very ambitious man. And so it wasn't just the plate turned up for the next job that would fall, it's the next great job. And his, the family enterprise, his family advisors were strongly pushing him towards a next step beyond the Philippines that would be an executive position, not the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court was offered twice while he was in this kind of in the Philippines, and then transitioned back to Washington to become Secretary of War to Roosevelt, but in both times he refused it. Um, and of course, he loved
0: being a judge. And
1: <laughs> I think we have we have a kind of cartoonish
0: view of Taft. Absolutely, right. he's so the hot tub he, president. I'm mean, not the hot tub, the bathtub president.
1: Yeah, he was, <laughs> so this cartoon is he wanted to be a judge but somebody made him not be a judge. Right. Which is a foolish view of him. Right. He's a very ambitious man who uh, who loved being successful and who thought he deserved to be successful and who's kind of rooted in the family genotype is from his father. His father talked about uh, uh, his sons becoming men of excellent careers and great mm. accomplishment. Yeah. And so... Um, that 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 kind of projection onto him is, is is a powerful force and of course his family advisors keep reinforcing that yeah so when it turns out he proves himself in roosevelt's eyes theodore roosevelt the president to be, to be very competent as the governor of the philippines and of course they go back a long way because they had become friends in the early 1880s when, I'm sorry, the middle 1880s, when when Taft was Solicitor General, Roosevelt had come to Washington to head the first Civil Service Commission. And so they were relatively young, kind of somewhat higher than mid-level bureaucrats. And they fell in with each other. And they had a kind of set of mutual connections that brought them together. And so Roosevelt admired Taft looking back at that period. And so his success in the Philippines brought him in Roosevelt's eyes to be a larger successor to Elihu Root when Root resigns as Secretary of the War. So he calls, um, um, he calls Taft to Washington. W- Taft consulted the family, mm-hmm. and which was encouraging him to continue on this rise in executive positions. With an eye, possibly in the presidency, rather than the Supreme Court, and Taft says yes to Roosevelt, winds up as Secretary of War, um, which is which was in fact only a paper position. <laughs> he was never really Secretary of War.
0: Yeah. So, okay. So before I get to Secretary of War, there is one question I want to ask about the Philippines before we kind of leave that behind. And that's I've, I've read and seen two takes on Taft as civilian governor of the Philippines. I, I feel like I know where your answer is going to lean, but I'd still love to hear it. And the two takes is that Taft was either a benevolent ruler who fought to remove barbaric American generals and improve the life of Filipinos or he was just another kind of racist, paternalistic American who set up an oligarchy for American businesses to exploit. What's your take? Like, are, are both true? Is one wrong? That's the cartoon. But that's
1: a cartoon. Uh, because there are elements of both intact. Jeff is clearly an imperial governor. And he, is, he would no more recommend independence for the Philippines uh, circa 1902 1901 then he would have uh, thought that he could fly. Uh, <laughs> uh, these were little brown people, and he used that phrase, yes. uh, who deserved to be cared for and uh, deserved self-government someday and, would, and should be nurtured to that end. So among his accomplishments in the Philippines is to create a, a robust and effective educational system to do much better than the Spanish had done to get rid of the corrupt Catholic church structure of the Philippines. So this this whole list of real accomplishments that were benevolent, that were good for the Philippines. He also fought to create economic opportunity by increasing trade between the Philippines and the United States, which would require changes in the American tax structure, tariff structure. He worked at all of that, but all of that was within the context of, of an American imperial structure. With colonialism, so 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 both are at work. But was Taft, how to put this? Was Taft a decent governor and a decent man? Yes, I mean I think boldly so. This is this is a good man.
0: Good, awesome. Thank you for that context there. Um, and so, as you mentioned, Taft, he comes back to the United States when Toady Roosevelt invites him to be Secretary of War, but he's, he's not really like a Secretary of War as we kind of right. think of it. What's he really up to during his time in T.R.'s cabinet, and how does it influence him? This
1: has struck me as really interesting um, it, it, because um, it was, it was a, a way also of looking into Theodore Roosevelt's mind. Um, uh, John Hay. Roosevelt's Secretary of State was ill, becoming iller, becoming sicker. So he really lost his Secretary of State. At the same time, Elihu Rood had been the most, arguably the most effective Secretary of War we'd ever had, who had um, modernized the, the, the Department of War, had created the first uh, general staff structure. Um, so Taft inherited an extremely well-organized Department of War. It didn't really need (laughs) an excellent manager, but Roosevelt needed a secretary of state. Yeah. And so the kind of jobs, the kind of assignments that would have fallen on Hay if he had been capable of, of, of performing went to Taft because Roosevelt trusted Taft so much. And that that's an important part. Of uh, the story, both for Roosevelt and for Taft, um, he had really won a great deal of admiration from Roosevelt. So uh, the uh, the initiation of the Panama Canal project falls the Taft's lap. Did he know anything about um, civil engineering? Not a thing. Right? Uh, was this a job for a lawyer? Of course not. <laughs> but he was sent to, to Panama to be to to begin to organize the project, which he did effectively. Uh, When, uh, when a civil war uh, uh, threatened to break out in Cuba, Uh, of course, is ostensibly an independent country at that point (laughs) under American suzerainty. Taft is sent to resolve the issue. He did, uh, having spent uh, spending a fairly long time in Cuba, Um, and so he becomes um, Roosevelt's important messenger to the world, Um, essentially a substitute secretary of state Yeah, uh, from Taft's perspective and from the perspective of Taft's family, this is wonderful because it's a kind of, it reinforces that path towards the presidency in that it's demonstrating Taft's fitness for the presidency. In
0: 1909, he becomes a president, you know, he, he gets it with TR support. Uh, he becomes a president and now I, uh, I've covered his breaking with Taft, TR's breaking with Taft in a previous episode. So we don't have to go into Bollinger, Peace Show and the cause of their falling out. But what does losing TR support mean for Taft's administration? Because Taft's going to go in, he's present, TR's traveling the world. Then they have this big falling out. What impact does that have on Taft as president?
1: It's a really interesting question. And I think that it, 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 there are several different related answers to that. But I, I want to start in a somewhat bigger scope. Um, the, and and, and that, that larger scope is that entering the presidency, um, Taft enters the first job of his career for which there was no recipe. There was no structure. Um, he, went to the, he went to the Philippines. That was the biggest challenge of his career at that point. But he went with a detailed plan of action that Elihu Root had created. Oh, okay. Go structure government, and it's going to look like X, Y, and Z. Go do this. Um, not that everything Taft did in the Philippines was uh, by that recipe. Right. He had a real feel for the people part of the of the assignment, um, the reaching out to Filipinos. But the uh, the structure of the job was a given to him. He entered the presidency, and for the first time. I, I envision this. He walks into the White House, goes into the presidential office for the first time. This is there is now there is now an Oval Office, by the way. This it had just been created. So he goes into the Oval Office and opens the drawers. Where's the recipe? Where's the <laughs> there isn't. Yeah. And he's and he's left in the situation where there's Roosevelt. He had vocally, publicly, and privately said, I am an extension of Roosevelt. That's my job. That's my job description. Got it. Yeah. To break, to break with Roosevelt is to break with the job, with the only job description he yeah. had. Yeah. I promised to further Roosevelt's progressive presidency. Yeah. When that relationship was shattered, then where's the compass? Where, what's have to do? Um the he was caught, and, and this is not just a problem of taft personally. This is a characteristic of a of, 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 a, of a chronological period. A, we're looking at a period in which it's the ending of the period of party dominance the, destruct, the, the dominance of party in the American political structure, the beginning of a more public, more pluralistic kind of politics. Both Roosevelt and Wilson, who bracket Taft, were very different from Taft and were responding to those winds of change, including to some extent breaking or redirecting their parties. Taft is a a product of that older party structure. And so he's caught in this tension between that older role of party in which presidents are essentially dominated by party, as McKinley had been, had Harrison had been, um, and the promise to Roosevelt that I am going to be progressive. And that's irresolvable. Taft couldn't figure a way out of that. And so um, he was was stuck as Roosevelt breaks with him, as he breaks with Roosevelt. It was very painful personally to him, uh, pitifully painful, uh, which is, uh, let me just a side comment on that. All the presidents that I've studied and know of, if I had to who is who, who to have as a friend or have drink beer with, it would be William Howard Taft because he's an essentially decent man, um, a, a personable, interested in other people, not just interested in talking at people. Like, <laughs> you know, people. Yeah. So this is a so so. In many ways, he's a really fine, fine human being. Um, but he needed, and he was hurt by this. this was one of his close up relationships and, and 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 Roosevelt was publicly attacking him and, and 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 Roosevelt's supporters were were now breaking with him, so that he was losing his polar star in the presidency. So what should be his agenda? what should guide him? And he lost that um now. I want to quickly add one thing he he had an agenda that is he did a lot of things in the presidency and if you look back at his presidency and see it was pretty successful there are things he did that no president had ever tried before one of the the thing that I like best it's not the most important thing he did but it's pretty important is is um postal savings bank this, <laughs> this, the postal savings bank was a place for little americans to go put their money in a safe place in other words the post office you go to the post office and you can create a deposit account really what yeah what that did and it's it, it it was it passed congress yeah put into effect and it solved a huge problem for americans which is you can't trust banks <laughs> federal deposit insurance yeah the uh, uh, the, the in 1907 we'd had a really significant political uh, economic crisis, a crash, in which banks crashed. Little folks lost their money. There were people standing in long lines at banks. Taft had a solution, the Postal Savings Bank, because it wasn't gonna crash. Your money was safe. And and in a way, the theater of Franklin Roosevelt's um, uh, uh, 1933 um, of federal uh, savings deposit insurance was the next bigger solution to it, and so there's lots of things in the Taft presidency that we could count on as real accomplishments and progressive. Um, but the but the, the the larger problem here is that the the over the overall story, the the, the headline story, is one of of, of, of the Taft presidency crashing because it's losing support, um, and he, just because he is he, he is um, the, the the Roosevelt progressives turned away. That is the Republican progressives turn away, and he was too clumsy to keep the support of the uh, fully of conservative Republicans because he was trying try to do things like the postal savings. Right, bill.
0: right. That's kind of one of the things that surprised me most about reading about Taft. It's, and maybe it's cause like if, if there's the first thing you know about Taft, it's he had this breaking with Roosevelt and you know Roosevelt's really progressive. So I was expecting a more conservative guy, but he's really trying to do a lot of progressive things. And as you know, like postal savings, he, he, you know, gets the wills in motion for income tax. He is conservation. Yeah. He was a lot more progressive than I expected. Can you elaborate? You said he was a successful president. Elaborate on how successful of a president was he. What made him a successful president? So what is a successful president? I mean, I'm- Question. (laughs) Um,
1: Ultimately, success in the presidency, I want to argue, is not the list of accomplishments. From a long distance away, we could look back, attack, for example, and say, hey- he was pretty successful. Look at the list. Yeah, <laughs> we a president's success is his ability, or ultimately her ability, to um, match the demands of the moment for leadership. Um, uh, think no better example than Franklin Roosevelt. But but then again, Taft is bookended by two presidents who fulfill that recipe. of uh, of Roosevelt and Wilson. And he doesn't. Um, He winds up creating conflict, uh, increasing conflict within the political system. Uh, Progressives breaking with him, and then conservatives trying to push back against initiatives, which we would both agree look pretty progressive. Uh, uh, More more antitrust action than under Roosevelt. Um, He also strengthens the federal government's capacity for regulatory action against corporations, he, strength, he, 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 he strengthens the Interstate Commerce Commission. Something that, in fact, he had also done in rulings as a as an appellate court judge. Um, and so, um, a fair amount of success in that respect. But um, but but failed to gain to gain political support, which is well, which is. In the presidency, um,
0: suicide paramount. Yeah,
1: <laughs> because you you lose.
0: Yes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so a question that's kind of a natural outgrowth of that, and this this comes from a listener, and I'd love to run it by you. It's two parter. Did Taft signal the end of progressive Republicans and the GOP, and did he abandon civil rights? He, he,
1: um. Couple. I think like those are two different things.
0: They are kind of two different things. <laughs> I
1: think of civil rights first.
0: Um, sure. Um,
1: the Republican Party abandoned civil rights in 1876 um, when it made the it, when it made the deal with the Democrats to put Hayes in the presidency.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The deal was to end reconstruction in the South.
0: Um, so, so anything after that, like you know,
1: right? There's no.
0: I mean, think about. Yeah,
1: I mean the. Democrat, the, the Republican dominated uh, Supreme Court after that ruled against the Civil Rights Act. I mean, there's the, um, there's the, there's the, the the wonderful role of John Marshall Harlan as a dissenter um, trying to call attention to the Fourteenth Amendment that civil rights was dead, um, and the Republican Party was interested only in. Um, the lonely black delegates in the South who were Republicans who come up to the convention and provide essentially machine Republican politics mm. for the party. Um, and the Republican party was appointing some blacks to low, low level post um, master jobs in the South, um, but civil rights was dead for the party. Um, uh, but progressivism, that is economic progressivism, social progressivism, apart from civil rights, um that did that that didn't die um with Taft uh, but it, it was it, it was transfigured uh because I think it's a mistake not to see later figures like well like Herbert Hoover yeah yeah as um as carrying some of that strain in his political style and political ambitions um and so it I think with Taft the progressive strain in the Republican Party begins to, um, like like the COVID virus, go through <laughs> a kind of uh, genetic mal- reformation.
0: Way to make a topical <laughs> analogy. I yeah,
1: always do that.
0: <laughs> oh, all right. So so that's the didn't abandon it didn't end when You're right. Like it, it, Hoover's kind of a weird character. I'm reading about him right now. He's a very interesting, like in between yeah, guy. Okay, so, so wrapping up Taft, he is ultimately defeated after one term, as you mentioned, in a large part because of this fracture with TR and Roosevelt running as a third-party candidate and taking the progressives yeah, out uh, of the public. Yeah, Republican.
1: almost wholly for that reason. Um, yes. <laughs> I, would love, <laughs> yeah. I would love to see a kind of, which we really can't do, a kind of uh, um, uh, uh, alternative history, which we try to rerun that election without,
0: without Roosevelt. Um, that would, yeah. Yeah, Will the Democrats uh, ever get back in the White House no, <laughs> without uh, giving Wilson uh, that shot?
1: So, but, yeah, Wilson gets in, Taft loses, he's embittered by it. Um, uh, he, 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 he slinks off with his tail between his legs um, because he doesn't handle rejection very well. <laughs> I mean, that's hard. Who does? It's hard. Right. And it's part of his being a sweet guy. <sighs> yeah. Um, and uh, his, fa- you know, in, in a way, to put it too simply, his father, Alphonse, would have really been disappointed. And in fact, he's going to go back to the law.
0: He will. And, and as you mentioned, actually, my next episode is going to be an interview all about his law career. He's going to have the second act in the Supreme Court.
1: Yeah, a successful act.
0: So, so if you look, though, like we, we focus on his, his rise and his presidency, what legacy do you think he leaves behind from that time?
1: Um, looking at only at his presidency, I think his legacy is, um, is um, undeservedly small. In other words, I think he was a more successful president in some kind of objective way within his own context than we have given him credit for. Um, and that's because in that larger sense, his, he, he was a misfit in the historical forces at work at that point. Now, having said that, I think there really is a concrete legacy that does go on and Taft is an administrator. Um, Taft, one of the things Taft did, I think, without being all that heralded, is he took the administrative dimension of the presidency seriously. He created um, a a commission to heavy hitting administrative experts to, Recommend significant changes in the executive branch, hmm. uh, including and Taft really took this took the bull by the horns on the uh, the power of the president over federal budgeting. There was no budget yet; there was no budget power yet, and Taft tried to push to create, by the way, without there being a legal basis for it, <laughs> uh, an effect in effect the presidential budget. And so these are important developments, and they go on to influence Wilson and later presidents um, in this kind of history of um, administrative reform and reorganization in the, the presidency. That's a, a, an issue I wrote about in my first book called Making the Managerial Presidency
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, uh, Advertise, advertisement.
0: <laughs> so, everybody go buy it. Yeah, sure. L- last question I got for you. What lessons in leadership do you think we can learn from President Taft?
1: Gee, you know this is this sounds this is saccharine, but I think there's a real lesson of decency in Taft. Um, the president, the presidency doesn't. Those who become presidents don't have to be twisted. Um, there's. I, I'm thinking of an observation of of uh, the great historian of uh, Gary Will's about the presidency. Essentially, what kind of normal human being gets up in the morning, looks in the mirror and says, oh, America needs you. Who's <laughs> crazy enough to seek an office in which the odds of winning it are huge? It's like buying a lottery ticket. Right. Um, so the people who, entered, who, who wind up in the presidency are often pretty twisted human beings. William Howard Taft is a, I think a, a whole and sound human being. Um, and that, that's a quality the presidency needs, but hey, Joe Biden may be a reflection of that too, um, of just what decency does bring to leadership. Um, and, but there's also a negative lesson here, and it is come to the, come to the presidency with more political experience than William Howard has. Win a few elections before you run for the presidency again, and have a good a, a good nose and e- good ears for the presidential winds and for political winds and smells.
0: <laughs> um, if you'd like to hear more from Perry, please check out Remaking the Presidency: Roosevelt, Taft, and Wilson. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Perry. This was fun. Hey,
1: fun, Kenny. Thanks. Thanks for for asking me on.
0: Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's always good to hear from y'all. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories, or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon, or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridged presidential histories. It helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard, Fife, and Drum Corps. In our next episode, we'll look at what Taft got to after the presidency, his time as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and the legal legacy he left behind. That's next time on Bridge Presidential Histories.